It's my privilege to introduce Mark Sandberg uh, to you. Uh, he is no stranger to our congregation. Uh, Mark and Vasma have been are, are with Greater Europe Mission GEM, serving in Riga, Latvia. Uh, Mark is involved in a ministry there of discipleship, preaching, and uh, church planning. Uh, Mark, where are you? Okay, yeah. Don't come up here yet. Yeah, come on. I was, I was trying to remember how how many years uh, has it been? A, almost 20 years that we've been privileged to be in part of your support team? Was, uh, I think there, I was actually last week talking about 20 plus years. I mean, it was before this building. Yeah, and, and I tell you, my brother, it's been our honor. We, we've, we've been pleased and, and thrilled to be a part of this. Um, Roger, come on up. Uh, Roger and Joy Martin, who will be here Wednesday night, are Mark's aunt and uncle. And uh, so we're, we're, we're delighted uh, to hear from Mark. Uh, he, is, he is serving as pastor of Communitas Church, also in uh, Riga, and is going to tell us about that ministry somewhat, I hope, and bring God's word to us. I'm glad there's a watch here, though I probably forget to look at it. But uh, I was thinking since uh, Gary has this newfound talent as a water gun target that you should upgrade... See if you're an equally good paintball target. Well, that, that's the next step. I'd like to find out about that. Uh, before I do anything else, the first thing, of course, that we need to do is simply say thank you uh, to you guys. I mean, even getting here, probably unknown to most of you, your church was significant in us this trip. I mean, Kurt picked us up. Kurt Ryle picked us up at the airport after 10 o'clock Friday night in Atlanta, and then we're driving one of the Bowers vehicles, and so our this trip for us is made possible because of you guys, and we are very, very grateful. But, I mean, beyond that, just your faithfulness in, you know, whatever, the 20-plus years, uh, but especially I'm, I'm very grateful for your faithful support um, just in the last months. I mean, since February up until, really, we got on an airplane, it's been very, very intense ministry-wise and kind of relentless. I mean, it's been a good thing, and we're very grateful for what we're doing, but there's been lots of kind of... Uh, carpe diem moments when it comes to ministry in the last few months, and so it's just been very, very intense with very, very few breaks, and I'm, I'm just grateful that we didn't have to worry about, for instance, our financial support or anything like that. We, we, we didn't have to be distracted by those kinds of things, and we were, we were able to focus on opportunities that God was giving us because you have very faithfully sustained us um, for many years, but especially recently, you know, different ways that this body has sustained us. We are extremely grateful for that. And even if I spent the next 30 minutes talking about that, don't worry, I won't. But even if I spent 30 minutes just trying to say thank you, I doubt uh, I could really express how grateful we are for that um, uh, faithfulness. So uh, we appreciate that. Also, we're glad that uh, we'll have, we're in the States for about four weeks, and so I hope we'll have a little more time with people here. We are here at Christmas. That was also very intense. We didn't have a lot of time with people, but we're going to be around a good bit, and so I hope that we'll have more conversations with, with many of you in uh, the coming weeks. But this morning, I'm not proposing to um, mainly give you kind of an update in, in, in ministry. We're going to, uh, you know, we're going to turn to the Word because that's what you are used to. That's what you prefer to hear on Sunday morning, I'm guessing. Otherwise, I don't think you'd be at Signal Mountain Bible Church if you didn't have a high tolerance for the Word. And I don't have a high tolerance for talking about myself too much 
either. Um, so we're going to look at Acts chapter 16. And um, in your bulletin, the uh, title of the sermon is When You Know Your Why. I don't usually give titles to sermons. And, and so when I was asked, what's the sermon title, I thought, oh, it should probably be catchy or whatever. But uh, the title, When You Know Your Why, uh, came from a, a little video clip that I showed some of my students in, in Latvia. One of, in the mix of different things that we do, um, both Basma and I are involved in the Baltic Pastoral Institute. It's uh, kind of the Baptist Union's training for church planners and pastors and that kind of thing. And Basma does a lot of pretty much all the translation work, both spoken and written, in the Baptist Union. And then I, I teach some courses at the uh, Pastoral Institute and then kind of had informal mentoring relationship with students. But it's usually, I mean, all the students are guys. They're generally pretty young guys. And, um, and you know, for those of you who are on Facebook, there's always all sorts of clips that come up. But I found one on Facebook that I, I showed these guys. I imagine some of you have seen it. It's um, when, I, I guess, I hope I remember the names correctly, when uh, Buster Douglas defeated Mike Tyson in boxing. And if you've seen that clip, I guess first Tyson knocks him down. And they think, okay, this is just another Mike Tyson boxing win. But Buster Douglas gets up and ends up beating Tyson. Maybe that was Tyson's first major defeat. But this whole, you know, clip, they have a real dramatic music and that kind of thing and this powerful dramatic voice background talking about it. But it's, it's all about why Buster Douglas could get up and defeat Tyson. And the point is, he knew why. He knew his why. And so knowing his why and finding strength in his why allowed him to get up and to defeat Tyson. So that's what I want to talk about this morning, knowing your why, when you know your why, and the difference it makes when you know why you're doing what you're doing. And so we're going to look at Acts chapter 16 for that. Um, This last spring at our church in, in, in Riga, we've been going through the book of Acts, and some sermons were kind of... Google Street level, where we looked at a fairly small text and a lot of detail, but some of the messages I did were very much kind of a Google satellite image with a, with a big picture. And I think when Luke was writing his story of Jesus and the early church and Luke and Acts, I don't think he necessarily meant that every little detail had some great meaning. There's a big story Luke was telling us, and we need to look at the trees, but if you look back at the, the forest of the story that Luke tells in Luke and Acts. It's an amazingly beautiful forest. And when you understand that big story, you understand a lot of really important stuff. And so I kind of want to do that with one chapter in the book of Acts, and that's Acts chapter 16. Uh, And there's kind of four incidences that I'm going to talk about very briefly um, about Paul. And I I want us just to see why Paul does what he does there. And all the different things in that story in Acts chapter 16 all fit together. They're all examples of Paul knowing why. And so basically the the, the four points I'm going to make are kind of the structure of this. Number one, Paul plays a card. And I'll talk about that card that he plays. And then secondly, Paul plans, but he also lets the Spirit change his plans. And then Paul engages with the world. He engages with the world. That's an important word. He engages deeply involved. He engages with the world. And then finally, Paul plays another card. Okay, so that, those are the kind of four incidences that I want to talk about. And, and it, 
you, you, were, you heard the first 10 verses, and those are the first two incidences. And so the story begins in um, Acts chapter 16 with what we now call Paul's second missionary journey. And, and he and Silas are going back to the churches that were planted when Paul and Barnabas were on their first missionary journey. And so it says in verse 1, Paul came to Derby and to Lystra, and the disciple was there, Timothy. Of course, you know that name, Timothy. And this detail is important. He's the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers who were in Lystra and Iconium. And so Paul wanted this man to go with him. And he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those parts. For they all knew that his father was a Greek. Paul plays a card here that maybe for him, for Paul, it was a pretty easy card to play. But for Timothy, not so much. I mean, think about that conversation. Timothy, I, you know, I see a lot of value in you, and I would like for you to come on our trip. And Timothy might be, wow, I'm honored that you invite me to come with you. Paul, I'm, I'm glad to do this. By the way, Timothy, I just uh, have a little procedure I have in mind for you. And Timothy might be thinking, Oh, wait a second. You know, that's usually for eight-day-old babies. I'm a little bit old for that now. Paul plays that card. Why does Paul do that? Well, I mean, Luke tells us, his, for Timothy, his mother is Jewish, but his father is a Greek. And Paul's got a way in which he operates. And, and when he goes to these cities, as you know, he usually goes to the synagogue, and he starts with the Jewish community or God-fearing people for whom circumcision is important. Circumcision itself, as we see in other things that Paul writes, is not so important to Paul. Circumcision, uncircumcision is nothing. But the gospel is central to Paul, and contextualizing the mission is central to Paul. And he wants to remove as many barriers as possible between the gospel and people. It's going to not be comfortable or convenient for Timothy. Paul is probably not so concerned about that. Paul's priority is not comfort or convenience for himself or anyone else. Paul's passion is mission. It's for the gospel connecting with people. And convenience and comfort just has to go to the side when you're focused on mission. So that's the first card that Paul plays, kind of the contextualization card. He's going to make sure Timothy, literally physically, is contextualized so that he will not be a distraction to the gospel, but will be, a, be an aid to what what Paul is doing. So Paul plays a card. That's the first thing that, that Luke tells us in this story. And then in verse 6, it says, they passed through the Phrygian and Galatian regions. If you can picture Turkey, kind of the uh, south um, east portion of what is now Turkey, where a number of churches were planted. Paul starts there, and then he, he's going to, wants to go into what, what's, what's called, what was then called Asia. Um, uh, but it says the Holy Spirit forbade them to, to go to Asia. And so rather than going 
you know, further west and then north in the middle of what's now Turkey. They go north toward Bithynia. And maybe Paul is thinking, okay, the northern part there will go to Bithynia. But then that's not going to happen either. They were trying to go into Bithynia, but the spirit of Jesus did not permit them. So they passed by Mycenae and then they went down to Troas. And there in Troas, Paul has, you know, what's often called this Macedonian vision where, you know, he has this vision of someone in Macedonia and in Greece now saying, come over here. Uh, and, and so Paul does that. By the way, you know, I, I think for most of us who are from European descent, not all, that's not all of us, but that's many of us, this is really important for us. Whatever it was that God was doing in his worldwide plan, what happened at that moment greatly affected us and our culture. You know, I mean, we should read that text and think, wow, what the amazing grace of God that for whatever reason he sent Paul that direction and the influence that had on uh, European culture from which at least some of us descended. But here's the point I want to make again, not with every detail there, is that um, Paul had a plan. Okay, he's on this trip and he's got an idea. Okay, this is probably what I'm going to do. And he, he heads that way. And it's good to have a plan. Uh, when uh, we started Communitas International Church a few years ago, that's kind of been the new thing on our table the, the last few years. Before that, I was mainly, my main role has been as a teacher at two different kind of uh, Bible schools, uh, you might say. That's, that's been most of my ministry, my time in Latvia, is kind of theological education, ministry training. But God led us, you know, not because I wanted to at, at all, to, to, to plan an international church in Riga because there was, there was a need for an English-language church. And so, so we did it. You know, I'm not a church planner. If I took one of these tests for church planters, you know, I, I'm sure I would fail it. People would say, no, Mark, you're not, you know, God didn't make you a church planner. But uh, you know, God doesn't seem to be too worried about those tests. So we we started this church, and um, uh, I had a plan. I had an idea in my mind that this is this is how I think things are going to unfold. And so we started down that road. For someone like me, I I, I had to have some kind of an idea. I'm not I'm not a natural leader. The the bishop of the Baptist Union. I know some of you are like Baptist bishop. Yeah, in Latvia, the head of the Baptist Union. He's He's called the bishop. He's this visionary church planning guy. And I mean, a number of years ago, he just said, Mark, just go start a church. Just grab some people and just go do it. You know, and, and I, I'm glad there's someone with that kind of passion there. But I'm like, I, I want to be sure that God is calling me to do this and not just do something to do it. But sure enough, God, God did lead us uh, to do this. But I, I needed to know where I was going. And so I had a plan, and we started down the path on that plan. Um, none of that plan has come to be. I mean, none of the things that I envisioned, you know, month by month, none, I mean, I think pretty much literally none of that happened. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm fine with that, and I realized fairly early on, I just need to, to try to pay attention to what God is doing and who God is bringing and let him bring who he wants to bring. And let some of what we do be shaped by that. Not mainly be shaped by my vision, but shaped by what it seems like God is doing. But that seemed to be how Paul operates here. And I, I just love Paul for that. I mean, often, you know, you get to extremes. There's the super spiritual people where you just, 
you know, I don't think or plan. There's no strategies or anything. Whatever God leads me to do in the moment, you know, then I just do it. And then there's the hyper planners that have everything detailed, a 10-year plan. And, you know, uh, you know, some pastors, I think, literally know what they're going to preach two years from now. You know, they plan their preaching schedule. You know, that, I don't know, I can't quite operate that way either. Paul seems to be a nice balance in the middle you know, he is thinking about what he's doing. He is planning. He has some ideas. But he's always sensitive to what the Spirit is doing. So he holds on to his plans, but he holds on to them lightly so that God can direct him um, where God wants him to be. And so that's what happens here. Paul has a plan, and he's taking those steps. But then when God moves him here and there, Paul just goes with the way that God is leading him. Okay, so Paul plays a card, and then Paul plans, but lets the Spirit change his plans when necessary. But then thirdly, and kind of the center of the story in Acts chapter 16, is how Paul engages with the world. But more particularly, what I mean is Paul engages with the peoples of the world. And it's very significant, um, uh, the people that Paul engages with uh, and the people that Luke chooses to tell us about. I mean, Luke isn't just kind of randomly telling stories about Paul and the early church. He's a, he's a very good thinker. He's a literary man. His Greek is excellent. His planning of his story is amazing. And he's, he's thinking about the story he's telling of the early church. And he's giving certain incidences and, and introducing us to certain people to make a certain point. And it's often helpful if we can, we can pay attention to what the Bible writers are trying to do, the path they're trying to lead us on. And I think Luke does that with the people that he highlights in Acts chapter 16. And so when Paul gets to Philippi, he spends some days there, and the first person he really engages with and connects with is this woman named Lydia, who apparently is a God-fearer. It doesn't seem like she's an ethnic Jew, but she's, she's a God-fearer, and so... Um, uh, Paul meets her down by the river where people are gathering, and there's a question, is this really a synagogue or just a smaller gathering of Jewish people? And scholars have differences of opinion. It probably, probably doesn't matter, but it's just Paul connects with Lydia. And the thing about Lydia is, number one, she's a woman. I mean, that's a strange kind of a phenomenon, that this is a person now that, that Paul is engaging with, and she's a wealthy woman. I mean, she's got a house and a household, and she even invites Paul and his companions to stay in her household. And, and if, in fact, which is probable, Lydia is a Greek woman, Paul choosing to stay in her house is very, very significant. But, but that's what Paul does, and that's his entree into what God is going to do in Philippi. So that kind of becomes Paul's headquarters for the things that happen in Philippi. And then the next little incident um, that Luke tells us about is, you know, this story about um, this, this slave girl who's a fortune teller. And, and she's going around as Paul is kind of preaching the gospel. She's saying, um, uh, these men are bond servants of the most high God. They're proclaiming to you the way of salvation. And that annoys Paul. I'd, I'd be interested to know how, you know, what it looked like when Paul got annoyed. But after a while, Paul has just gotten really, really irritated with this. And it's hard to know exactly 
why. Um, it might be that um, simply because she's this fortune-telling slave girl, she's really giving the truth. I mean, Paul, in a sense, is talking about the Most High God and a way of salvation. Maybe it's just it's confusing that the true message is coming from this girl. But that phrase, the Most High God, could also be used for Zeus, you know, the, the, the top god of the pantheon. And so in any case, it's just going to confuse the message Paul thinks. So he's getting annoyed with this, and so he, he, he casts his spirit out of this, this girl so she can no longer, you know, tell these fortunes. And now her owners are annoyed. Of course, they play a card, a card that has often been played in the history of Europe, and that's the anti-Semitism card. So they stir up a crowd. You know, we Romans are being bothered by those Jews, those other people that we can put in that category, anyone we can put in a category and label, make them the other, we're good, the other, those guys are not so good, they're coming to our land, those other people, they're disturbing our way of life, let's shut them up. That's a card these guys play, and they stir up a crowd, and so um, Paul and Silas are arrested, they're beaten, and uh, thrown into jail. And, of course, the next incident is one that, if you've grown up in Sunday school, is probably a, you know, a common Sunday school lesson of, you know, Paul and Silas in prison. You know, they're singing and praying in the night. There's an earthquake, and, you know, the, the chains fall off, the doors open, and there's probably, you've probably seen flannel graphs of that. Does anyone use flannel graph anymore? But, but I'm sure I've seen flannel graphs of Paul and Silas uh, in, in prison. And, um, so the doors open and the jailer um, uh, comes in and he's, you know, as you remember the story, he's going to kill himself because he figures, okay, the doors are open, the prisoners are gone, I'm in trouble for the sake of my own honor, I'm just going to kill myself rather than, you know, let the, the officials in the city kill me. Um, but Paul says, don't harm yourself, we're all here. So he gets lights and he comes and says, what must I do to be saved? And here again, it's hard to know exactly what he's thinking. I mean, maybe he's heard enough of Paul's message um, that he's thinking of the word save the way that we think of it in church. It might be he's just thinking, what can I do so I don't get killed? You know, I don't want to die today. What is it that I can do to make sure I'm saved? Or maybe it's somewhere in between in that there's this earthquake, and, and generally in that culture, that was understood as being sent by gods. So maybe he's just thinking, oh, the gods have sent this earthquake, I might be in trouble, and whoever these gods are, I want them on my side. In any case, it doesn't matter so much what this guy is thinking, because, of course, Paul has this one message that he's always going to give as he engages with people. So he says, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And so, in fact, uh, Paul gives the gospel to the entire household, and the household become believers and are baptized right away. This is another person that Paul engages with. And again, it, it, it's, I think, intentional on the part of Luke as he's talking about these different people. Paul engages with Lydia, a wealthy woman. But especially because of she's a woman, because of her gender, she has a less significant place in culture then. Uh, Paul engages with a slave girl, a victim of human trafficking, no doubt. Someone, because of her social place, has no standing, no significance. In society then, she's a zero. She's nothing. 
No one cares about her except Paul and people like Paul. And then this Roman city official who, again, because of his ethnic background, is, is a Roman, at least in Jewish eyes, you know, he's the enemy. He's the other. You know, if we Jewish people are the chosen people, you know, we're in the center. Those Romans, they're the bad guys. They're outside. But Paul engages with people who are not so well-connected in terms of gender or their social status or ethnic status. And I think it's intentional what Luke is doing here in these stories. I don't think I'm just, you know, I, I, you might think, well, this is, yeah, missionaries like to talk about these variety of people, and so they're always trying to pick things out of the Bible that aren't there. But I think this is intentional on the part of Luke, and here's one reason why, is that when you, um, you know, look at the kinds of stories that Luke tells, there's a number of times in which he tells stories in pairs. And in those pairs, there's always a male and a female. In, in Luke chapter 2, when the baby Jesus is taken to Jerusalem, Two old people meet Joseph and, and Mary, Simeon and Anna. A few chapters later, Jesus raises two people from the dead, the son of the widow, widow of Nain, and then he raises the, 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 the young girl, the, the ruler's daughter, male and female. In the book of Acts, um, when Peter goes to Joppa, two miracles of healing, a male and a female. Here in Acts chapter 16, there's these pairs, two households, oikos, that word is used, of Lydia's household and the jailer's household, male and female. I, I myself think it's a dead certainty that Luke is telling these stories on purpose to highlight these are the people that the gospel is meant to reach equally. And in light of the gospel, they're all equal, they're all important. And Paul engages with all of them, wherever they are in anyone's eyes. Whoever might look down on someone because of gender or ethnicity or social status, anyone who is somehow outside the boundaries, according to society's values, the gospel cares about because the gospel cares about them because Jesus Christ does. Paul does, and so he engages with these different kinds of people in Philippi. And then finally, Paul plays another card. The next morning, the, 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 the chiefs of Philippi are going to let Paul and Silas go. You know, I don't know, whatever they were thinking, I don't know. You know, but now they're just going to let them go. And now Paul plays this card, and I don't know why Paul didn't play it before, when when they were first beating him, Paul then could have claimed, hey, you can't do this, I'm a Roman citizen. Maybe Paul didn't have a chance. I mean, maybe there was just such a mob beating him that Paul never had a chance to defend himself. But generally, it seems like Paul doesn't do things just to defend himself. He doesn't play the Roman citizen card for his own sake. But now he's going to play that card. So when they come and say, let those people go, Paul is going to be a little bit cantankerous here and say, well you know, wait a second, you know, you guys imprisoned us and beat us and you weren't supposed to do that because we're Roman citizens. And of course, that's very important in Philippi because Philippi is a Roman colony. It's, it's populated mainly by retired Roman soldiers, probably people who were not born citizens, but won their citizenship through serving in the Roman army. And that's 
That's the most important thing to them. And you've got to respect Roman citizenship. And so suddenly these Philippi city officials are very, very afraid because they have not properly respected Roman citizenship. And so they come and, and um, you know, beg Paul and Silas to leave. No doubt, you know, leave quietly. And, and I don't know, I, I have this picture of um, uh, Paul kind of intentionally walking slowly. I mean, the, the last verse here is they went out of prison, and first they went to Lydia's house, you know, and they saw the brothers, and then they departed. And I kind of have this picture of the officials are kind of wringing their hands and walking behind, and please walk faster, walk faster, and Paul is just kind of walking along. We'll, you know, we'll get there when we get there. But that's the card that Paul plays, the Roman citizenship card. And the question is, why? It can't be 100% certain, but the most probable answer is this. Paul knows that he's now going to leave Philippi. And here's this little body of believers to a person. They're new believers. They're all alone there in this Roman colony, the Roman Empire, and there's a little band of kingdom of God people. And so Paul plays this card to put the fear of, if not the fear of God, at least the fear of the Roman Empire in the heart of these Philippi city officials to make sure that they're going to leave this little body of believers alone. So Paul plays that card. So that's kind of a big picture of um, these things that happen in Acts chapter 16. Paul plays a card. Paul plans, but lets the Spirit change his plan. Paul engages with the people of the world, and then Paul plays another card. Different kind of stories, but they all come back to that question of why. Why does Paul do that? And it's the same answer, and it's all centered on mission. Paul is wholly engaged in the mission of Jesus Christ. And everything that Paul does, it's based on the mission of God advancing. Academics sometimes use, use the phrase meta-norm. You know, it, it, it's above other kinds of norms. There's a, a norm that norms other norms. How do you give a hierarchy of what's important or not a meta-norm? I, I like the phrase a presiding conviction. We all have beliefs. Maybe some of our beliefs rise to a conviction that we would really suffer for. Most of us have all sorts of beliefs that if we suffered this much for, we would abandon those beliefs in a moment. Probably we have a few beliefs that we would suffer a little bit, but we might have a a few convictions that preside over other convictions. For Paul, that presiding conviction was mission. Paul knew his why. And when you know your why, um, you can much better decide what to do. I mean, for instance, our, our church, Communitas International Church, we're an English language church. We have a number of local people there, but, you know, we're, we're especially trying to reach the international community. When I was thinking about church planting, the picture in my mind was not what we're doing. I... I you know, I thought, okay, if God is going to lead me to plant a church in, in Riga, my picture was an extremely non-traditional kind of church. That's what I wanted to do, is something very non-traditional. 
But God ended up leading us to plant an international church, and I just had to abandon, you know, what I wanted to do because I'm thinking, why? We're a church that exists for international people. What is it that they're looking for? What does a church need to look like that can connect? I don't want to do something that would create a, you know, a foolish barrier between our purposes as a church and the people we're trying to reach. So our forms come out of our why. When we know why we are doing what we're doing, then we know what to do. When you know your why, then you know what. And when you know your why, you can keep doing it even when it's hard. Um, When I first started the church uh, a, a few years ago, uh, well, it's, uh, is this, I guess this sermon is being recorded, so I, uh, probably no one in Latvia will, will listen, uh, listen to this, um, but I'll try to be careful not to give too many details. But when, when we started the church a few years ago, um, you know, someone called and said a certain particular person was interested in coming, and I knew right away that that person's presence in our community was going to be problematic for a number of reasons. And my first thought was, oh, no, we're just, we're like we're just getting started. And I would just really rather not have this kind of problem. And so I just said, okay, let me, let me think about it. In the morning, I'll call you back. And so I was just thinking, and but I just had to, suddenly remind myself, why is the church there? Who is it who is supposed to come to church? Who is it that needs to be in church? I mean, who needs to be sitting here right now in this building? People who have their lives together, people who look good, people who drive nice cars, people with clean clothes, people who have their act together. Or are there other kinds of people who really need a place like this? So after about 30 minutes, I realized, well, why am I even thinking about this? We know what the church is here for. We know who we want to come. So I just called back, or Vasma probably did, and just said, yes, of course that person is welcome. Of course. There's, there's, I hate to use the cliche, no-brainer, but it's a no-brainer. When you know why you exist, then you know who should be there. Uh, I, uh, I'm I'm just, I'm looking at the time, so I'm just, I don't want to, probably won't give all the examples I meant to give. But this morning, I woke up really, really early, not for any particularly spiritual reason, uh, just, I'm a poor sleeper and there's jet lag, so I was up really, really early. Um, and I was just thinking about my message, and I just had this memory of something Gary said a number of years ago. I'm sure, I, I, I'm pretty sure Gary doesn't have any memory of something that he said, and I don't even think it was in this building. I think it was in the log cabin or whatever you called, you know, where Signal Mountain was started. But it was, it was so long ago that one of the big issues at that time was AIDS. Uh, and, and I don't know, can't remember the background to, to the discussion why Gary was talking about what he was talking about that Sunday. But it was it, it somehow it was in the context of, you know, a, a church, will a church accept, let's say, people with AIDS or children with AIDS? You know, if some child with HIV came to Sunday school, would, would that person be welcome? You know, would you hold a baby 
who was HIV positive. And I remember Gary said, and again, I, I, I bet you don't even remember, but he just said, if no one else will hold that baby, I will. Of course. Who cares if the baby is HIV positive? See, those are the words who some, from someone who, who's answered or dealt with the why question. In the mix of things that are important, and many things are important, what is more important? What is the most important thing? And Gary's words come from, words then came from someone who's wrestled with that why and knew, of course, of course, that's what I would do. Of course, anyone who knew what Jesus was about would hold a baby like that. When you know your why, then you know what? It doesn't always make doing it easy. In fact, it doesn't always make figuring it out. Sometimes when you know why, you know exactly what to do. Other times it's still a hard decision what to do. But always the question is, why? Why are we doing any of this? What does this have to do with anything? I mean, everything that, 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 that happened, you know, today in the service, why, why did we do that? Why did we sing certain songs? By the way, those songs that John picked, that was just Romans 8. I've never heard Romans chapter 8 put the music with that selection of songs. That was just uh, amazing. But, but why do we do any of this? Uh, I, uh, there's a couple blogs that I subscribe to, and, and there's one I don't subscribe to, but I end up reading it. And it's some guy who's always writing about worship and church worship and what worship should look like. And I, I shouldn't read that guy because he's very frustrating uh, to me. Um, he's... Um, well, you know, you've been involved in those worship wars discussions. But honestly, it's the same discussion for 20, 30 years. It has never changed. In this particular blog, he's saying the same things that were said 30 years ago. It's never made a difference. But this guy thinks he's kind of on the high ground, but it's frustrating because he never asks why. So he's telling us what kind of music to listen to. But he's never actually dealt with the question, why, why does the church meet in the first place? Why are we here on Sunday morning? And you can only answer that question when you ask yourself, why does the church exist at all? Everything that we do needs to connect with that purpose. And so this guy is telling us what to do about music, mainly have hymnals and organs. Okay? Um, I'm not quite so conservative there myself, but, uh, but that's not my point. There's nothing wrong with traditional music or organs or or hymn books, or whatever, but it's just, he doesn't ever ask the question, why? You've got to ask the question, why? Why are we doing what we're doing? And for Paul, it was mission. He knew why he existed. He knew why he did everything that he did, and it all fit together. It was a completely coherent life for Paul. It all fit together, and everything that he did was consistent with that purpose. And he could pursue that to death in good times and bad times. He could pursue that because he just knew why. He knew why he was doing what he was doing. And when you know your why, you can live with a degree of boldness and assurance that you can never have unless you figure out why you're doing what you're doing. But again, for Paul, it was mission. He was alive for mission. He was called for mission. And everything that he did, every card that he played was for mission. Everyone that he talked to, he had mission in his mind. 
Everything that he thought about, planned about, and how he listened to God, he's, he's thinking about mission. What is God doing, and how can my life participate in the mission of Jesus Christ? When you know your why, you can live that way.